Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show where we take all that negative energy and channel it into something constructive and hopefully positive. And Lord knows we need that approach right now. Look, if you are struggling to keep your head above the water, if you are fearing the worst, just take a moment for yourself right now. Let's just all together step away from the world and enjoy this time together. Don't feel guilty about it. We all deserve a little bit of time out, a little bit of respite from all the anxiety and craziness that's going on right now, um, which I'm certainly feeling too. You might want to slip on some headphones as this episode does feature some adult material. It's easy to just say, oh, that's not my window dressing. I am not a young woman who had an affair with a teacher. I am not a housewife in Indiana whose husband doesn't want to kiss her. I am not someone who has sex with other people in front of my spouse. So, yes, I wanted to tell their stories. I wanted them to feel unalone, and I wanted people out in the world to feel unalone by reading that. Told you. That is the brilliant author, Lisa Tadeo, who has documented the sex lives of three women for her book entitled Three Women. Oh, it's a remarkable work and it's definitely one of my favourite books of the last 12 months. I mean, I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it and I was just so happy that I was able to sit and quiz this incredible writer. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now, here's the show. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Initially, how I found out about you being in town, my detective work, someone was like, oh, Lisa's doing this party. We, obviously, we've never met. But Lisa's doing this party, and would you like to pop along to it? And I said, look, I'm not very good at parties. I'm awful at socialising. Can I just chat to her? Because I loved that book so much. And can she come on the podcast? And thank God you said yes. So oh, thank you. Of course. I'm not you. coming to the party, so sorry about that. <laughs> no, no. Thank you. Um, I, like so many people out there, was tipped off about reading Three Women. And there was obviously just so much talk around the book and so much hype around it. And I was totally intrigued. And like everybody that has read it, literally couldn't put it down for th- I think I read it in about three days it was just I became completely transfixed and I I just romped through it and it is such an extraordinary book let's just go through the stories for people that haven't read this book so the book is about three women and uh, shocker um, the first one is Alina a housewife in Indiana who is in a marriage where her husband no longer wants to kiss her on the mouth and, in fact, says that the very sensation offends him. So she 
reconnects with a high school lover and begins a passionate affair. The second woman is Maggie, a young woman in North Dakota who has an alleged relationship with her high school English teacher. And when she reports it, her entire town, for the most part, doesn't believe her. And the teacher later goes on to win North Dakota's Teacher of the Year. And the third, Sloan, is a woman whose husband likes to watch her have sex with other men in front of him, or they have sex with other people in the same room together. And she is trying to find out where her desire begins and his ends. Obviously, it's this sort of collation of stories, but actually, it's so much more than that. It's, I guess, a study of desire. Would you say that's an accurate way of describing it? Uh, yes, I, I would say that um, it's a study of three specific lives and desires, obviously a big part of it. But for me, I wanted to just show that three or, you know, at some point it was 20 people that they were their lives, their sexuality was as important as the celebrities that we read about most often. So having been immersed in in that sort of subject matter for such a long time, so I know it took you years to to create this book, what would you say desire is? Is desire just a physical pull? Is it is it something completely different? What what would your summary of it be? Well, when I first started the book, it was, um, the proposal was untitled book about sex, (laughs) which could have gone in a thousand different ways. And I went to a couple of places to begin with, like this place called the Porn Castle in San Francisco, where they quite literally were just filming pornography. And I was following this young woman who was being directed having sex with men on camera by her girlfriend. So she was gay and having sex with men. And I thought that was really intriguing. But after a couple of weeks of shadowing them, they kept saying, it's just a job, it's just a job. And I realized it was just a job. And that was a point at which, while I find that really interesting, it would be good for a chapter, but I didn't want to write about it at length because it felt too... I just wanted to, so for me, I'm sorry, to go back to your question, desire, I wanted it to be deeper and I wanted it to be something that compelled someone and filled up their day and was not necessarily, wasn't something that was completed by sex, that even that the act of sex was secondary to the act of wanting something so badly that you would do anything to get it and missing it so much when it wasn't there and and kind of you know your world at some points revolving around it to the point that nothing else matters you articulate this so brilliantly in the book and with these three stories it was completely thrilling to read and then at times it was really sad to read because of that that want and that at times desperation is it fair to use that word yeah and I wonder if in some cases or with all the people that you interviewed during those years that desire can actually be a quite negative thing because there there can be so much sort of self-destruction around it you know you you want something so desperately Mm -hmm. whether you're getting it or not and and that is so intoxicating and can kind of send you off to do all sorts of things that you might not do if you were if you had absolute clarity about what you want in life and what you don't do you think the three women in the book have regrets about their desire and where it led them yes and no because I still speak to 
um, them, including Maggie, the one who had the young woman who, as a high school student, allegedly had a relationship with her English teacher who was married and obviously much older. You know, Maggie in particular, I don't know. Maggie was rather... Her life was to an extent decimated by what happened. Um, but with Lena and Sloan, Lena, the housewife in Indiana, who has – she cheats on her husband with a with a former high school lover and Sloan, whose husband likes to watch her have sex with other men. With both of those, even though – with Lena, the housewife specifically, even though – the sort of the 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 level of her desperation when this man did not call her back for two weeks or when she would drive four hours to just see him for like twenty minutes, I think, and I've heard from them in different ways that that desire in that part of their lives made them who they were, mm-hmm. just like any negative experience does, and the negatives often are spiked with some positives, whether it's, you know, genuine lust or just a memory that even though it's kind of, quote unquote, bad, when you're older and sitting on that proverbial rocking chair, you have that that fire, whether it's negative or positive or composed of both concurrently that I think I don't think that they would take it back. Mm. I personally wouldn't take mine back. You've just described the three women. First of all, what was the process of of distilling the the group that you had down to these three? And and why did those stories jump out? Why did you think they would work in book form? So there were hundreds of people that I spoke to, both men and women, though it was predominantly women at a certain point. I just found there was more of a complexity to the desire that that they spoke about that that sort of ruled their, their day. Uh, When it came down to selecting these three, I had about 20 in the first draft of the book, men and women. And then I whittled it down to 15. Most of the whittling down process had to do with how much the people had told me. And when it came down to about 10, the sort of um, the word count alone on these three, and I even had like about 20,000 to 30,000 more words on each of them. So it was difficult to uh, to whittle it down. And I, even when I gave it to my editor, it was still way too long. So word count-wise, these three women were 70% more than the others. And But beyond that, beyond um, content, it was also how much they had given me, how much they let me into their lives, how much rawness and honesty. So when you looked at the other stories that were in there that had made it to the final 10, it was like you just skipped those other stories. Even myself as someone who knew the stories, I just wasn't it, – it was just so obvious that those three were the ones that were – that the others felt like filler. Mm. I mean, they, they quite literally told you everything. And this is not just about their sex lives. This was the, the emotions behind it, you know, the shame and the heartache and everything. How, how did you get to that point where there was that trust, where they knew they could sit and you were not going to judge them, you were just going to – record what had happened in their lives? I mean, for the starters, I moved into several of the towns, not just of those three women, but of everyone that I, not everyone, but of many of the people that I spoke to. I think when you move into someone's town, when you spend a year and a half to two years around them in their community, but also not in their community in a way of like, you don't know their best friends, really. You might have met them, but you don't hang out with people. So you're this kind of this non-judgmental ghost that's kind of just hanging around. Um, And at a certain point, people just fall into this 
rhythm of wanting to talk about their lives, of feeling like being heard for the first time. Uh, like Maggie, um, mm. the high school student who, you know, her case went to trial. Nobody heard her. They didn't hear her story. They heard a certain snippet of it, but they didn't hear the details. They didn't want to. And um, and so at a certain point, the the people in the book just they it just felt i think cathartic to talk but you know at also at every point i think one of the things that made them feel comfortable as i said you know if at any point you want to remove something or stop talking or say you know this entire you know 15 days that we've talked or six months, I want to just strike this. So that's how a lot of people kind of fell off from the book because it would end up being like, you know, I woke up and went to work and then I went to work again and I was like, okay, this is great. But mm. <laughs> it's not um, it's not for the book. So um, so I think that was part of it that it, this was a, there was an idea of like, but they had this, this comfort because they knew that I wasn't, you know, writing an expose. I wasn't writing about a politician where I was, everything was on the record. So it wasn't on the record or off the record. It was just kind of like we're talking and we can talk about what you don't want to talk about in a year. And do you think because these three women had been so wildly judged by the people around them that you became this kind of beacon of light, someone that wasn't doing that, that just wanted to listen and to make their story real rather than it being some sort of dark secret they'd had to lock away. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just actively listening, it's just something that you can do for someone. I'm not trying to sound philanthropic, but it's something that just being an ear is so, you know, because you have best friends, but there's a there's a back and forth. And even if one best friend talks about a breakup for six months, at a certain point, the other friend is going to go, okay, whoa, yeah. now this is my life. And I just never did that. <clears throat> Why do you think there is still so much judgment around sex, specifically with females? Because I still think there is a disparity, you know, where mm-hmm. women are labeled certain things if they talk about sex freely mm-hmm. or there's still this sort of bizarre judgment around women enjoying sex. Yeah. Why do you think in this day and age we're still battling against that? You know, I think it's it's so interesting and also terrible. Um, I think that, you know, we've been talking about men's desire for thousands of years. It's totally okay. You know, even when men do something, politicians do something that is terrible, uh, even at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, it's a man and that's just part of being part of the male species, the gender rather. But with women, we're talking so much about what we don't want. We're still not talking about what we do. Mm. And I think it's because other women judge each other. And I think there's like, there's a great deal of shame. If you see yourself in another woman having done the same thing, you don't want to look at a mirror. Or if another woman is Mm. getting something that you want but haven't got, like let's say a woman has a baby before you've had a baby, you know, there's that judgment. There's the judgment of, I always think about it literally, my metaphor for everything in life is sex in the city. Mm. (laughs) And and I think there's nothing that hasn't been covered. Yeah, true. And you think about, you know, when Miranda has a child and, and Charlotte wants one. She's like, why are you having a child? You don't even want one. When uh, Carrie is going on about big, Miranda doesn't want to hear it. And I think the reasons that they feel that way has nothing to do with their compassion for their friends, but everything to do with their own, their own damaged 
emotions. Mm. Isn't that just so often in, even outside of talking about relationships and sex, you know, how all of us, if we act out, and we'll all have a bespoke way of, whether it's anger or mm-hmm. sorrow or whatever, but it's never really about the other person. It's just always about your own feelings of lacking insecurity or whatever. But with sex, it seems almost heightened. Like, there's there's an extra layer of judgment, an extra layer of kind of nastiness around it, really, mm-hmm. which which needs to be eradicated. And I feel like that's what your book was challenging. I'm not sure whether you want, were wanting to or not, but it, it certainly felt like it was doing that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't start out trying to do that. I just saw so much of it. And specifically with those three women, they didn't judge others because they were so judged themselves. So I think that when you are judged, you feel you have more of a sensitivity to doing it to others. But so many of the people around them were just so, you know, one of the things that struck me so much is that Lena, who went to this discussion group that I had started, but I kind of removed myself from it in the book. But Lena came to the discussion group at first was like, you know, my husband doesn't want to make love to me. He doesn't even want to kiss me. And all the women were felt so sorry for her. They were holding her. And a couple of weeks later, she came in and said, I've just met my high school lover again. And we just had this amazing, mind-blowing encounter. And all the women afterwards, when I not all the women, but most of them said, she's such a whore. Wow. And, and that was so, um, you know, it was also small town Indiana. So having a husband who doesn't want to touch you anymore is something that you have to deal with, but you can talk about it. But doing anything to ameliorate that that sadness and pain is because maybe they're feeling the same way. Yeah, and they, they haven't out. done that. <clears throat> yeah, God, it's extraordinary, and it's it's sad that because one of my questions was going to be, who do you think is more judgmental towards women and sex? Is it men or is it women? But it's women. It's definitely women. Yeah. I mean, that's just very sad. Mm -hmm. And I guess, again, it just roots back to your own desire and whether they're fulfilled or Mm -hmm. not. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Also, looking at desire with the three women that you followed, how much of their desire do you think was based on their own lacking and their own insecurity? Was it purely, I want this, I need this? Or was it, I feel so awful about myself that this might fix me? I think it was both for Lena. It was both for Lena was, I feel so awful that this might fix me. And, you know, this is what I want. For Sloane, I don't think it was an awful feeling. It was just like um, her husband wanted to watch her with other men. He wanted to be with other people. But at the same time, he felt so powerfully for her that he was the, he didn't desire anybody else. He just had this fetish. So for her, I think it was kind of exploring what she wanted in that um, and how their relationship could be heightened by that. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a lacking so much as a what what is an additive, perhaps, because they did have a, a very good marriage and a very great sex life. 
And with Maggie, it wasn't so much sexual what she wanted. She was a young woman who was not really appreciated. She was she's so intelligent, but she wasn't seen that way because she didn't act in a certain manner. She can be very abrasive. Um, she can be very strong, but deep down she has a lot of pain. And um, and when this teacher shined a light upon her, made her feel beautiful and intelligent, uh, the things that she was, the things that perhaps other people weren't feeling, she felt so good about that that when the sexual aspect came with it, you know, it wasn't non-consensual, but it also, I don't think it was something that she necessarily wanted. I think it was just a byproduct of how he made her feel. Mm, which just, again, highlights how complex desire is. You know, it's mm-hmm. not one thing. And it's mm-hmm. and with these stories, you can see how desire has, has manifested for these women mm-hmm. and what it's led them to. Let's talk about Maggie because, I mean, her story was, was just a roller coaster. You know, I, I felt one minute kind of... I was just captivated by the story and then I was really sad about what this poor girl was going through and and we get to the end of her story where the teacher in question is dropped of all allegations and Mm -hmm. and is off scot-free. At this point, he's been named Teacher of the Year in their (laughs) town. I mean, it's the extreme of the extremes. completely. And she has to live with that. And and I guess before before she had actually gone to report what had happened... um, she was kind of left in this awful place of just like hanging off a cliff. I want this to go somewhere. It's not. He's just cut me out of his life. Mm. What now? Like you say, all those little kind of moments of light that he shone upon her mm-hmm. just went out immediately. Mm-hmm. Was it pure revenge, uh, her actions, do you think, of, of, of trying to get him, you know, in court to, to deal with this properly? Or was it because she wanted to be seen? She wanted to be heard by him? She was still hoping there could be love forged? What, what do you think her, her motives were? I think there's a million different things. There was also a moment at which the thing that really sort of uh, sparked her doing, her reporting it, was she was with a friend who was giving her a tattoo that was meant to sort of be a symbol of healing because everything was so – it had – really just ruined her life in so many ways, uh, whereas he, nothing had happened. In fact, the opposite had happened. And so her friend said to her, you know, he's he did it to you. He's probably done it before. He probably will do it again. I mean, for example, Maggie is a social worker now, and I think a lot of that has to do with this not wanting other people to feel that way. And so there's that. And I think it, you know, I don't know if revenge is uh, the word. I I do think it's this sort of like, you know, it's unfair that you get to have this life that is better than even it was before. Mm. And I have to have this life that you, you know, and I think that's the thing that that was awful was that he cut her off one day, completely cut her off. And that happens to a lot of people. But it happened to a person that could not talk about it to her friends. It happened to someone who, you know, just had to be left alone with that feeling. And that's what was the most disruptive and destructive Mm -hmm. was this kind of like, here she had this secret that was kind of thrilling. And then all of a sudden, she had this secret that was the opposite. And so I think it was a mixture of many things. I mean, although um, you don't ever pass judgment or put your opinion on the page, you become 
the conduit, you are the, the voice of, of these women. In, say, Maggie's circumstance, did that feel quite liberating for you as a woman to help somebody have a voice who, who felt they didn't? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the first time I met her, I was so I mean, I knew I read the newspaper story when I was in North Dakota um, researching a different piece story for the book. And I read this story in a local paper. The trial had just ended a couple of days prior. And I saw all these hours of phone calls after midnight. And, you know, I was just shocked that he had been exonerated. It was shocking to me. And the other thing that was shocking to me was there was not actual intercourse. There was, you know, there were all the other aspects. And I thought that was so interesting because I thought that if you're going to lie about something, why why lie about, why take that out? You know, and it just felt like there were so many details that, anyway, so I, I, I thought, you know, no one's talking about that. No one has talked about the intercourse aspect and how that was left out. No one is talking about the nuance of that. And I did, I wanted to tell the nuance. I wanted to, I think that sort of, you know, and I say it in, in the book, I think the only way we can really commiserate is one thing and also just uh, see ourselves and other people is to have that specificity because to just have this overview, it's easy to just say, oh, that's not my window dressing. I am not a young woman who had an affair with a teacher. I am not a housewife in Indiana whose husband doesn't want to kiss her. I am not someone who has sex with other people in front of my spouse. So, yes, I wanted to tell their stories. I wanted them to feel Unalone, and I wanted people out in the world to feel unalone by reading that. Mm. And you're absolutely right because I think if all of us are really honest with ourselves, we will see something of us in in all three women. You know, whether it be unrequited love, desire, you know, feeling drunk with passion, we've mm-hmm. all felt those feelings on a level. If we've been in a relationship, wanted to be intimate with someone or not, so. You're absolutely right. Those sort of nuances are so integral to us having a connection with other people rather than ra- making the choice to have a connection rather than passing judgment. Right. It's looking for those intricacies. Let's talk about Sloan because I know one of the reasons that from having a big pool of people that were mixed gender, mm-hmm. you went down the all-female route because mm-hmm. you really felt the emotional pull, the emotional story behind the the act of sex mm-hmm. or, or the desire. With Sloane, a lot of the time she is having to have sex with men that are chosen by her partner and she's not necessarily that into them. Mm-hmm. Do you think she was lacking emotion in those moments? Yeah, I think that she was she was lacking desire. I think she was sort of, you know, she was never there wasn't a coercion. There wasn't like, you need to do this. Or it was kind of like, what do you think about this guy? And she'd be like, okay, sure. You know, there's an element of that. And I think we've all, to an extent, if we are not virgins, I think we've all slept with people that we don't want to sleep with. And not even in a coercive manner necessarily, just kind of like, I read this the other day, I forget who it was, but someone said, we were having sex and I didn't stop him because I felt like it would just make more of a mess than it needed to be. Mm. So why not just go through with it? Why not just end, like, let it go? It'll be over in four minutes or 20 seconds or whatever it is. And I think that that's, that, that was part of it. So that when she found someone, when they found someone who 
she desired very much, um, it changed things for her. And she could go back and sort of see those other times, not as, oh, I was coerced, but as like that wasn't, that's why it wasn't working. And it's something I do and did want, but I didn't realize that it was because the person wasn't right. Mm. And then with Lena, you know, she's got this husband that is not into her. She ends up in this real sort of fantasy engagement in her head. It's just, you know, she is obsessed by by this person that she's that she's re-hooked up with that she knew from a long time ago and it, it becomes her everything. In all three situations, it does seem like the man is in control. The man has autonomy and the three women don't. Is that true or not? You know, I think it seems that way very... It, it's a very easy, um, you know, and I think in a lot of cases it it is that way. But in a sense, it's also Lena, for example, who I think of the three is the most obsessed in, in a sense, driving those hours to spend 20, 30 minutes with someone, you know, dropping your children off at babysitters, not having the money to do all these things and yet finding these little slivers, um, you know, basically doing the the proverbial looking under the couch for change, in in a sense, to be able to do these things. Um, You know, and this man didn't call her back or didn't text her back for weeks sometimes, but he wasn't saying, he wasn't like grabbing her and putting her in some like, you know, box and saying, you're here and sometimes I won't call you. She, She waited. She wanted that. And in some cases, she fell on the sword of that desire. But it was her desire you know, it was the man was not getting back to her. She had the option of not speaking to him anymore. And that's the thing. But that's so difficult if you want someone so badly that not speaking to them is. But that's your desire. That's not them holding something over you. He always, he also didn't say, I'm going to leave my wife for you. He said, oh, you should hang out with my best friend, this guy. And so, you know, he was also very clear about what was going on. So I think, yeah, if she had been strung along, that would be a different thing because it's more difficult to see it that way, to understand. But, you know, with, with Lena specifically, it was her. It was her desire. Was she, mal, you know, treated poorly? Yes, but she also was... She treated herself poorly in those mm, moments. Yeah, that's such a big part of it. You can see. And and like you're saying, although she wasn't necessarily always getting what she wanted, she still took charge of what what she was doing and her actions. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was her decision making. Do you think with Lena, her desire was because she couldn't get what she wanted? Or did it just become this physical need, this visceral pull that that she had to kind of almost full stop? I think it was totally both. I think, you know, she had been group raped as a young woman, uh, then bodily abandoned for a decade by her husband. I think that when she's this passion with this man, you know, in reality, he perhaps wasn't, he wasn't exactly this paragon of a, a perfect person. He had so many, you know, he was potentially almost an alcoholic. He was cheating on his wife. He was not the best father. There were all these things that she understood. But when they were in bed, when they were in his car or her car, it was like perfect. It was amazing. And that's the most sexually explicit section because she literally was 
telling me word for word. She was writing it down and sending me Facebook messages and showing me the in the in like kind of like, you know, hours later we would drive to the spot where she had been with him and she would tell me everything that was going on that had gone on. And she was finding her body in a spiritual sense, I think. And she was finding her who she was inside in ways that sometimes, you know, sex or, you know, some intimate relationship like that can make you feel about yourself. So to answer your question, I think it was both a visceral pull and an emotional pull, which is what, you know, I think to answer your one of your first questions is that's what I think desire is. I think it's both mm, those two things. So complicated. It's unbelievable. And do you think that by her sort of, you know, telling you all these things and taking you to the spot where they'd been, for her that was a big part of it as well, sort of being able to relive it again and double the time that she had those feelings Mm -hmm. and those chemicals kind of whirling around her. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I think it's like a diary, only it's a diary that, it's a living diary that you're telling someone she had no friends she could tell. She came from a very traditional Catholic family. Her friends would have told her, you have to stop. She didn't want to stop. She wanted to just talk about it. Like, you know, when we have crushes, we want to shout it from the rooftop. You can't do that. Maggie couldn't do that. Sloan couldn't do that. So in a sense, you know, telling a sort of like, you know, a ghost or someone who's just like out there scribbling something down, but not judging and not telling your friends about it. I think that that um, that, that is, it's what it's what it just makes you feel like you know like alive mm. and all three women seem to be i guess to some extent chasing that feeling you know that that first bit of any relationship which is heady and intoxicating and and unrealistic to sustain over any amount of time mm-hmm. even sloane who's married you know yeah. she's still wanting it to be the best, best kind of relationship that she could give her husband by yes. doing all of these acts. So they're trying to capture that moment and and retain it. Do you think mm-hmm. there's a, a danger in doing that? I don't know if there's a danger. I think that I think we all I think we all want to sustain it as much as possible. And then I think there's a sort of, you know, plateau where we kind of go, oh, okay, it went away, but now I feel peace. You know, I don't have that anymore in a sense that it makes me be able to concentrate on work or just, mm. you know, um, fixing my house. Or I can fart whatever. in front of you and it's fine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Totally. That's the moment for me. Yes, it's like, yeah. I feel like I can fart in front of this guy yeah. and he won't leave me. Yes. Okay, we've gone out of that section yes, of the relationship. Totally. And I'm fine with it. Totally. That's yeah. cool. Peace. Yeah, exactly. yeah, my husband's fine with that. Yeah. But it is a moment where, you know, me and my husband talk about it a lot because... He's a bit of a romantic, and Mm -hmm. I am as well, but I also am quite realistic, I Mm -hmm. think. And we've got kids, and there's lots going on, whatever. So I kind of know that I love him, and that is present. But it's not going to feel like it did that first six months where we were staying up all night and, you know, having this crazy, intoxicating time without thought or care. And he sometimes will question it, like, but why isn't it? And it's like that... That is just a natural cycle, isn't yeah. it? No, I, I don't. I think it's which is why I think Sloane's marriage. I think it works in a different way because it's constantly being, it's being re 
ignited every time they have someone else in the bedroom, in a sense. So I think that for most people who aren't sort of reigniting it on a daily basis or a weekly basis, I think that's exactly what you just said. I think that it's impossible to sustain. I think that what Sloan is doing is kind of a, a, a way of sustaining it. So I, I don't know if that's, you know, it's things are not for everyone. We all do things differently. I, you know, what I've do with my husband is the same thing. You know, we had that same um, passionate, you know, everyone has that and then everything plateaus. Or maybe you have that six months and then you, you know, you see the person for who they are, maybe and it's not what you like and then you leave. Um, You know, so I think it's just different for everyone. But yes, I think that I think it's it's nearly impossible to sustain that. And how much for you during this writing process, how much of this book was a call for women specifically to talk about sex and desire more openly? It it became that towards the end. And after it was published, it was something that I was happy that was kind of a a sort of byproduct of what the book had been, had the way it had been researched and the way it had been told, I think there was an underlying, you know, underlying subconscious element of that. Um, one of the things that that I, one of the reasons I told it the way that I did and I wanted to get as granular as I did was because I was, after I moved to Indiana rather suddenly, um, I was telling one of my friends back in New York about Lena, who I was profiling. And I told her how she was, you know, meeting this man and doing everything to meet this man for just however long she could get from him. And my friend said, oh, my God, that's so pathetic. And what I thought was so powerful about that was that I had to remind her she had done the same thing with a man in in New York who worked at Goldman Sachs. And I think that that's when I realized the window dressing is different, mm. but the emotion is the same. And so I did want to have other women tell their stories or at least understand each other's stories and see Mm -hmm. themselves in those. Do you think also we get feared up about talking about sex openly because, again, that strange sort of disparity about how how men might talk about sex and how women will talk about Mm -hmm. sex, that there's these unwritten rules that then come along with that that basically allow people to inform who they think you are. Like maybe you're not a very serious person. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. And these are just thoughts that I was having my way here. What would that mean? Like what would give someone the impression of you if you started to talk about it? Or that maybe there would be an inner fear that we might then become more objectified. I don't know. There seems to be like an underlying fear within us outside of other people as well. Totally. I think that that's something that, you know, I think it happens more with women. I think that men are more sort of, you know, their ego drives the way they talk about it and they want to be seen as someone who has sex with multiple women or being. I think women, there's that Madonna whore complex. Do I want to be seen as a good girl who is the one that the man marries? Or do I want to be not seen perhaps? I don't know how often we want to be seen that. Or am I the woman who cheats with the man, who steals the man in a sense? Am I somewhere in the middle? And I think talking about that is so, you have to constantly think about what other people are going to think. So you you act as though, you act in a way based on that, but then even more, I think, destructively, you don't talk about the way that those feelings feel. How much of what we've been fed culturally do you think informs all of these kind of unwritten rules. Because if you think back about, you know, 
how music's been written for hundreds of years mm. and, and how women have been seen in... I'm saying music because I listen to a lot of music and I really listen to how women are talked about in music and saying country music or whatever, how how women, might, you know, might be the cheating hobag or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and in films and sort of popular culture, how much do you think that is to blame for where we're at now? I think it's a, very much to blame. I think that the way that we, you know, I think I don't think desire changes. I think the way that we look at it changes. And I think that in some ways the way that we looked at it in the 50s, the 1950s is very much the way that we're looking at it now. That's depressing, With, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I think the Me Too movement has almost done that it's so wonderful that we are talking about what we don't want. I think that talking about what we do want, though, within that framework is very is we, we have less that we can say because we either need to be at that sort of, we need to be up here or down here, being in the middle, being in the middle of that nuance, you will get quote unquote canceled on social media if you're talking about that. Mm. Um, I just think it's it's harder. God, I mean, it's, it's kind of worse than I'd even imagined in a sense. Do you know what I mean, I think we all, we just go through life and we, you know, it's all normal to us. Mm-hmm. And that's that. But I, And that, that's what, you know, your book kind of woke me up in that way as well. Like, why aren't we talking about this stuff mm-hmm. openly? Why aren't we sharing these stories? Why aren't we listening to other people tell their stories without judgment? So thank you for writing it because it, it's not only an exhilarating read and just a wonderful collation of stories, it's it's a real moment for us to change the way we, we talk to each other. So thank you so much for your brilliant work. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, Lisa. So lovely to meet you, you brilliant, interesting human. Three Women is available right now. I cannot recommend it enough. It's a a fascinating document on sex, lust and relationships. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes of Happy Place weekly, every Monday. You can do that for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere, basically. And to find out who's on next week's show, find us on Instagram at Happy Place Official. Thanks again to Lisa, to the producers, Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Thanks, Matt. And to you for listening. Hang on in there. I'll see you next week. Stay safe. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.